Kia I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, we're talking about one of the biggest annual events in the world. And no, it's not a music festival or a sports game. Well, the UN's International Climate Summit is underway in Dubai. The much-awaited COP28, the most important climate conference of the year. It will feature world leaders, business officials, scientists and activists discussing ways to address and combat climate change. There's a whole lot of talk of progress. A major announcement this morning, the president of COP28 declaring a new deal that aims to dramatically reduce methane emissions over the next five years. And still, the dire warnings are trotted out. The world is expected to record an all-time record temperature this year with dire consequences. Global emissions from fossil fuel use are on track to hit a record high in 2023. Meanwhile, we have the farcical situation of the conference's president also being the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. The head of COP28 under fire again. There's no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. I talked to Newsroom's Rod Oram for a rundown on COP, what it is, how it works, and why this year's may be the most important yet. This is his third COP, and he's in Dubai, where the winter temperatures are in the high 20s every day. When you're out and about, you at least coming from Aotearoa, you can feel the heat. Um, but of course, this is nothing compared with summer. Last year, July 15th, 16th, two consecutive days, uh, Dubai set a new record of 50.1 degrees centigrade. Um, we're only just past dawn, and I can't quite work out whether that's haze naturally <clears throat> or human-induced smog that uh, blocks my rather distant view of the centre of uh, uh, Dubai. Mm. Um, but uh, the sun's not yet over the horizon, as far as I can tell. There's a few climate kind of issues you've brought up there as we get on to our conversation. Uh, but just chat us a bit about COP. Uh you know, if you were going to explain it to a person who'd never heard of it before and they heard the word COP and they were like, what's that? What would you say? I would start with the acronym. COP stands for Conference of the Parties. So the parties are all the nations that have signed up to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And in fact, it's now almost every country in the world. The convention's hugely important because it's a way of um, codifying where countries stand on climate issues and how they're dealing with them. So COP is the annual convention that brings uh, all those countries together. It is a, obviously a huge process because of the number of countries and the complexities of the issues. Um, and crucially, because it's a United Nations framework, any agreement has to be approved by every country. So there's huge value in countries coming together to negotiate fiercely, share ideas and all the rest. But outside of negotiations, this is an extraordinary wealth of civil society organizations, research institutes, um, uh, scientists, academics, um, NGOs, cultural leaders, faith leaders, um, businesses, youth, uh, indigenous people coming together um, because these are all common issues common to all of humanity. And so COPs get bigger and bigger. Uh, Glasgow in 2021, COP26 
was about 40,000 people. COP27 last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, was 45,000. And we've just passed the 100,000 mark here at COP28. 100,000 people. So these are people who, they're negotiators from countries. Uh, You talked a little bit about the kind of people that are here, but give me an example of the, the people that come from each country. Well, I'll give you an example of the New Zealand contingent. There is a system where governments can include what they call party overflow in their contingent. So that's not government negotiators, um, but civil society people. So for the first time, New Zealand's uh, exercised that party overflow. According to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, around 100 Kiwis, including representatives of businesses and organisations, are in that overflow. The delegations being led by the new climate change minister, Simon Watts. And it's about the same size as last year, with a couple of dozen officials attached, including ministry negotiators, an iwi representative and former climate change minister, James Shaw. It's a very diverse uh, cross-section of people. Now, you get some hardcore diplomats and climate negotiators who have rump for bit about uh, this turning into a circus. And, you know, let's just strip this back to negotiations. The former chair of UN climate change negotiations, Adrian Macy, told First Up the summit's outcomes are likely to be disappointing. The actual COP in terms of the intergovernmental negotiation, that could be scaled down to something much more manageable. And then this massive climate fest that we have all around it, which has got nothing to do with the negotiations themselves, that could be done really as a separate international climate conference. But I think that's fundamentally wrong. Because I think the presence here and for negotiators to have to even if uh, have only fleeting exposure um, to the societies that they represent as they walk from the metro station into COP or they walk between buildings, I think it's really important for them to see the messages, to see the signs of hope and expression, fear and anxiety and protest. And so that's why I'm a great believer in COP being this big. Um, even though it's it, it takes you a while to find your way around, um, not just physically, but just get your head around all the potential, you know, the infinite variety of things you could do here and then make good choices about what you're going to do. So I think it's hugely important. Can you describe how it works? So there's a whole lot of buildings. This is our space. Expo City, Dubai. What's going on in these buildings and, and what are they discussing? The physical location and facilities of this COP are very superior to the previous two I've been to. Um, I mean, they were good in Glasgow. They were pretty good in Egypt. But there was a a real air of um, temperiness. I'm not sure that's a word uh, (laughs) uh, about um, about the facilities. But here, Dubai's got um, a huge um, convention and exhibition area with massive halls, massive meeting rooms and uh, congress areas and all the rest. And that's right alongside where they held Expo 2020. It's an exhibition of the entire world. 191 countries will participate, hosting pavilions, showcasing their culture, cuisines, art, technology, innovations, inventions, the best from around the world. And now a number of countries kept their uh, 2020 pavilions And so there's a whole bunch of buildings there. 
So what you've got are two zones. You've got the blue zone, named blue because that's blue is the sort of key logo color of the United Nations. And the blue zone is where all the negotiations are going on, where each country has its political delegation. And that's also where there are a number of, um, a large number of uh, pavilions, i.e. meeting spaces by countries, um, by NGOs, by special interest groups, by themes. And so that's um, that's the epicenter, if you like, of COP. <clears throat> then sitting alongside it in the um, expo grounds um, is the green zone, which is open to the public. Um, you have to go online to get a ticket and you still have to go through security and all the rest to get in. But that's a huge area because it housed the expo. And there you've got even more pavilions um, and um, exploring these issues. Then beyond those two zones, there is the city zone. There is um, all the things going on around this quite big city of about 3.8 million people. And very august organizations, um, these are not fringe events. Um, take over um, a major hotel convention center, for example, to run a program all week. Um, and so there's this wealth of programs out there in the city as well. So as a journo, can you go pretty much everywhere? Is there ever anywhere that's closed off to media? Yes, absolutely. The negotiating rooms. <laughs> uh, so in the blue zone, those meeting rooms are many and often very full and um, often very tense, needless to say. That's the one place we can't go. But there is one fascinating e- exemption to um, that question of going into meeting rooms. There is a, a, a very impressive Canadian NGO that many years ago um, said to the United Nations, look, wouldn't it be helpful if there was um, accessible reports on what was going on in negotiations to help people understand that? And the UN agreed. So um, this organization has exclusive rights to go into negotiating rooms to give a flavor of the meeting um, and the points discussed and and identify countries and where their positions are. This is called um, Earth Negotiations Bulletin. That analysis at the end of negotiations by Earth Bulletin does it for me. That's a fascinating daily insights as to what was happening the day before. It's staffed by very, very talented young, um, generally young people, you know, PhD students, you know, experts in various fields um, who do a very, very excellent job of reporting. It's very factual. It's devoid of the sort of um, emotion that could creep into reports. And so it's, um, it's a great resource. So can we go on to why Dubai was picked? Obviously, it's a controversial place being one of the uh, most uh, oil-intensive, oil-producing countries in the world. The planet's burning up. Humanity's addiction to fossil fuels is to blame. And the hosts of a crucial UN climate summit this year is the United Arab Emirates, a Gulf petro-monarchy whose stated aim is a 25% ramping up of activity at its state oil company. The answer is quite simple. Um, The UN um, sees the world, I think, in six regions, and therefore it rotates 
uh, the hosting of COP through each of the six regions. So, for example, next year it's supposed to be Eastern Europe, but um, Russia is apparently objecting to any country hosting it that is opposed to its war in Ukraine. So there's a huge standoff about where COP will be next year. Um, so it was the turn of this part of the world, and um, Dubai is an excellent choice because of its facilities and its transport connections and everything else. <clears throat> so Dubai very enthusiastically offered to host. This question about is it appropriate for a fossil fuel producing country to host and be president of COP? I would argue that yes, it is, because every country in the world uses fossil fuels. So we, we all have a vested interest of some kind. Obviously, a petrostate has a far bigger vested interest, but the positive view on this would be um, it really puts them front and center um, of the issue. And indeed, um, the Emirates um, have been feeling the heat, particularly in the last few days of, of that role. And um, so if it means that a petrostate can bring other petrostates and then hopefully private sector fossil fuel companies to shift their positions to agreeing that indeed our use of fossil fuels and thus their emissions needs to be phased out fairly rapidly. Maybe it takes one of them to be the leader in that. Um, and therefore, in one sense, I've become, well, certainly more accepting of the UAE's role, not relaxed. I mean, I'm not relaxed about the whole process here. This is really white knuckle stuff. But um, in, in getting hot and bothered about all that, I, I think it, it distracts from the potential benefit of a fossil fuel producing nation being the host. And what have been the most significant happenings since you've been there? The most controversial is one that happened on November 21st. That was when um, Sultan al-Jabba, who is um, the president of COP, um, and he is um, Emirati, and he's chief executive of um, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the um, Emirates state-owned oil company. He was on an online call with Xi Climate Change, is a, a wonderful women's organization uh, leading on climate issues. And it was an online conference, including people like Mary Robinson, uh, a previous president of Ireland, who then went on to the United Nations Refugee Commissioner role, I believe, and then is certainly a very much an elder stateswoman. And um, she was asking al Jaber some really pointed questions, and he got increasingly testy in his answers and said some extraordinary things, such as... There is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. Show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio, for sustainable socio-economic development, unless you want to take the world back into caves. Quite extraordinary outburst. And the day after that was revealed um, with very telling video clips by The Guardian, he hastily held a press conference where he was saying, I honestly think that there is some confusion out there and misrepresentation and misinterpretation. I have said over and over that the phase down and the phase out of fossil fuel is inevitable. In fact, it is essential. 
maybe it'll take even historians to work out quite how that has impacted. Um, but we'll certainly see um, over the next week whether A, his outburst has weakened or discredited hosting and presidency of COP, or whether it was one of those moments that just so extraordinarily crystallizes the issues that it does cause a course shift. I think that for me, and for many people, was certainly the most piercing, the most pivotal moment mm. um, in this COP so far. In New Zealand itself, how, how are we contributing? I mean, were we looking bad before the change of government and how do we look now? Pretty much every country in the world struggles on all these issues. There's not making enough progress fast enough. So we are not an exception in that. However, the fact that National campaigned on overturning the ban on offshore oil and gas exploration has been a factor here, which is why New Zealand won the Fossil of the Day award on the first day. New Zealand received this heinous award because they've taken a U-turn on climate policies. And their climate change minister, Simon Watts, has been talking about plans to reopen Aorteo waters to oil and gas exploration. What exactly does that mean, that award? This is an award made daily at each COP by um, the Climate Action Network, which is a group of about a thousand um, climate NGOs around the world that um, work together in conferences like this. And um, they just pick each day an egregious example of a country doing something or not doing something um, that um, you know prolongs and promotes fossil fuels. So we won it on the first day. Climate change minister Simon Watts is heading out later this week. He's with us. The Labour Party says that you should be embarrassed by this award. Are you embarrassed by this award? Well, Heather, the Labour Party got this award last year. So uh, I and think that's the year a before. We have a very, very low profile here. There are plenty of other countries with a population of only 5 million people or so that have national pavilions where they are telling the world what they're doing. We don't have one of those. No, no, oh, not at okay. all. And neither did we at, in Egypt last year or Glasgow the year before. Why do we have such a low-key profile? I mean, we try and uh, present ourselves as this clean, green country. We are a country of only 5 million people. Uh, do you think that's part to do with it, or does the government care enough? I don't think any government that I've been following, and I've followed a few now in my 26 years in New Zealand, really understands the value of investing in that kind of um, program. This new government, they've only just come into office and they have, you know, a a good reason to still be finding their feet. The uh, Ardern government made commitments, delivered on some, not on others. Um, You know, we have some very good climate um, structure in New Zealand, like the Zero Carbon Act and the Climate Change Commission, etc. But there is always this huge resistance in New Zealand to spend any money um, on something like a, a pavilion at an international event. It's always a huge scramble for every expo to get enough money together to have a... And, and the New Zealand pavilion here at um, in Dubai in, in 2020 was excellent. Um, 
I've been to the last three expos over the years and because I have a particular interest in seeing how, how we present ourselves to the world. Um, and, um, you know, we do okay at expos, but um, I would, it would be really wonderful to see New Zealand to step up um, and play a, a much bigger role. After this is all done, after it all finishes up um, in, a, in a week or so, is that right? The official ending date is December 12th. Negotiations always drag on. Mm. It could be 13th, 14th even before there's a final agreement. Okay. So what do you envisage the outcome will be? I have no idea. And, and I think very few other people do. What could it be? Well, I'll offer you a spectrum. Um, if there is robust language about um, a phase out of fossil fuels and out, not phase down, um, it needn't have a time frame on it, but you know it needs to have you know some sort of commitment there. That would be considered a triumph. Um, so that's one end of the scale. I think the odds on that are extremely small because there are going to be major producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia um, that will have other thoughts on that. At the other end of the scale, there would be complete chaos um, and a rambling agreement with just a whole bunch of useful things pulled together and tried to be dressed up as something substantial. Because good decisions are being made, um, but it's a question about making these you know, pivotal ones. <laughs> and okay. um, so something on fossil fuels, quite where that lands, uh, and hopefully lands on something articulate, uh, and meaningful rather than just a vague expression. That would be what would make this a a very good cop. Right. So we're not going to see a 2015 Paris agreement or anything, uh, but, you know, we might see something substantial, hopefully. It, it actually would be more important in a sense than the Paris agreement because the Paris agreement only gave us a structure. Very, very important. But now it's about delivery. That's what we urgently need is some very big binding commitments on actual reductions, um, on actual delivery. Um, and that's what we're looking for at COP. So we can see a, a big head of steam behind Paris. There are high hopes. There isn't the same level of hope here of a huge breakthrough on fossil fuels. Um, but there's no doubting in many people's minds that if that happened, this would become the most consequential cop to date. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. It was produced by Alexia Russell and Sharon Brett-Kelly. Thanks to Rod Oram. Ka kite anu.